Well, we are in a message series entitled, I Don't Know What I Believe. And it's focused on 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. I asked if maybe you would consider memorizing that passage in, in Scripture. And if you have, then now's the time to practice it. And if not, it's going to be up on the screen right here. And if you would, uh, let's read it together out loud. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Amen. Well, last week we started with this, uh, with this, and we said, I don't know what I believe, but I know in whom I have believed. And the, the idea that we have been saved, that our salvation rests in a who, not in a what and that we live for the who. What we believe about the who says a lot about our lives. And this week we're gonna look at this word, um, sanctification, which is just a really big word for holy life, being set apart for the good of God. Um, this, this book was written by Paul, and Paul is writing to Timothy, and Paul's in prison toward the, he's been in ministry for about 10 years, and he's, he's preaching to Timothy, he's giving him encouragement to live this out, and that he is called for something more. And so as we look at this, we're going to start, at, we're going to look at chapter 9 this morning, I mean, verse 9, it says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Now, these two parts are not, uh, they're, not insep- they're, uh, they're inseparable. So, he has saved and called us to a holy life. Somehow, along the way, um, there has been some kind of a, a misunderstanding that we can just say this prayer, this sinner's prayer, um, and then be saved and then not spend Uh, After we die, we'll go to heaven and we won't burn in hell forever, right? So that's kind of some theology that we hear out there. I grew up in a a place that just, you just need to just say the prayer and then then you got your fire insurance and you'll be okay. But it's not, you don't separate it here. It's, um, you are saved and called to a holy life. And it's a purpose that God has already given you according to his grace and not because of anything you've done or can do or will do. But I, I believe that um, God, Jesus, lived a little differently. He showed us an actual way to live, and he said that our life everlasting begins now, that eternity is in session right now. It's not just reserved for after we die. So we're, we recognize this salvation, and then we're called for a purpose because of God's grace and this holy life. 
holy life in ancient times, this pursuit of holiness was not foreign. This is something that they, fought, uh, they were very, very important to them. The religious leaders, the Jewish elders, they, uh, they worked very hard at trying to live holy lives. They had a whole list of rules and places, they, uh, things they could eat and ways to be clean and not mix certain foods and who was welcome at the table and who was not welcome at the table. All this whole list of things that you needed to do in order to be holy. And if you followed that, then maybe you had um, more access to God. And in the gospel, according to Matthew, we read that um, Jesus gives the greatest commandment to the law, um, greatest commandment to the, the elders. And so in, in Matthew 22, verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus. So crowds were always following Jesus, trying to trip him up. And they say, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, they had this set of what they believed, a whole list of what they believed about how to live a holy life, how to be holy. And Jesus said, I'm not going to give you one of uh, those lists. He said, I'm going to point to a who, and it's God. And it's about relationship, and it's about love, and it's about motive, and it's about heart. And it's not behavior and these actions. And in our attempt to live holy lives, to follow Jesus with our whole lives, sometimes we have come up with a list of things that make us feel holy, even though that might not be what we're called to. And in doing so, we can sometimes come across as hypocritical where we say we believe one thing, but our lives reflect something completely different. See, this life that we're called to, this kingdom living life, is here and now, available for everyone. And he wants us to live in such a way that people want to follow him, and so when we don't do that, it makes it difficult for other people to enter into the kingdom, which was the whole reason that Jesus came, to say there's no longer a division of Jew and Gentile or, or slave or free. He said it's here for all people. And Jesus always went to the heart instead of our behaviors. So they were, they were very concerned with sitting at the right tables, and Jesus turned it all upside down. And uh, in fact, he was really, really convinced about this, and he would call them like hypocrites to their faces. Now, this is a problem in our church today with Christianity, and it's a problem when Jesus walked to the earth then as well. So we're not escaping it. The unfortunate reality that we face as a church that, that oftentimes our hypocrisy have tur has turned people away. Am I right? We hear people say the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Guess what? There's always room for one more. The church is judgmental. The church, all of these things, right? And I think what, what has uh, contributed to this is that we have somehow defined church as a place that we can go. Like we can go to this church. So as long as I'm in this church and I behave this certain way, then somehow I am holy. And then when I walk out the church and I get in the car, I cut people off in traffic, I give them the bird, I yell at my kids, I lie, I cheat, I steal, that's okay because that's outside here. But in church is when I can put on my, my right self. Have you ever seen that happen? You ever experienced that? 
when our lives look completely different than the life we complain, we, we proclaim to live, it is hypocrisy to the gospel. I was in a conversation a couple months ago, and um, someone mentioned that they just aren't coming on to church because they had an interaction with someone who went to their church that was so outside of a loving interaction. They said, they're just so hypocritical. I don't know if I can be in the church with them. And I, my response was, I'm really sorry that you experienced that, but lower your expectations. <laughs> I mean, we're human. We're trying to work this thing out. We're all, this isn't, it's just not in this building. It's everywhere we go. We say the church, uh, I don't go to church. I am the church, and the church goes with me everywhere. So you know what I'm talking about. I mean, this this process of sanctification, of becoming holy people, is that we work it out. We give ourselves grace. We give other people grace for trying to work this out because we will be working it out until the day we die. No one has arrived until the other side of eternity. So we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Um, I am the first among all of the hypocrites right now. I am not speaking anything above the other. I'm the first one to say, you know, just the other day, I totally lost it with my kids. I totally shouldn't have yelled. I totally messed up and in need, such in need of God's grace. So we are in this together. In the church that I grew up in, um, they had a a long list of rules um, that we had to follow in order to be Uh, Christ-like in that church, and so I was a a young girl. My mom was divorced, which was not, um, which was very, uh, it was not acceptable in in their space. Um, I wasn't allowed to wear shorts or show my kneecaps or my shoulders or um, a lot of uh, country music. We couldn't go to the movies. Um, I remember listening to MTV. I think I might have told you this, and they turned on MTV, and I was like, devil music, and like ran out of the room and embarrassed my mom. But we eventually left that church because we were so hypocritical because we went to the movies, and we did these things, and it just wasn't matching up, and it just was, it was too much. And so we try so hard to protect our lives from the evils that are out there in the world. And we do the same thing with our churches. Sometimes we say we don't allow certain things inside of the church building because it might seem as unholy. And oftentimes churches have felt weird or awkward, but maybe it's supposed to feel that way because that would be more holy than others. When in reality, oftentimes, um, it's just a preference. Like some churches prefer to have a choir and a pipe organ. And some churches say that's not our preference. We're going to have a, a, a band. We're going to have drums. And some churches say we don't want any instruments. We want just voices. And neither one of those is more holy than the other. It's a preference, a way we connect with God. And let me just say that I love the local church. I love that we can have various expressions of how to worship God in this worshiping community that we are a part of the kingdom of God, and that as a church body, we gather in all different places to worship the one and only true Savior. I believe that the rationale of, of that church that I grew up in, they were trying to do the right thing, but oftentimes it didn't produce the right results. See, holiness is not about the church being separate from the world. This holy life isn't about being insulated. It's about the church entering into the world in the, with the full armor of God, Understanding that the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and you are in that power. 
And the same thing as being, as, as our individuals, to insulate ourselves from others is not the way to holiness. Holiness is being in the world, but not of it, and equipping ourselves in order to do that. So for the remainder of the time this morning, I want us to look at that Lenten passage where Jesus enters into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan before his ministry begins. And, and, and before, before um, so he had this moment in the wilderness, and we just read a minute ago about Jesus being tested by the uh, the Jewish elders, the experts, experts of the law, um, asking about the most important marker of a follower of Jesus, of, of love. They say the greatest commandment, and Jesus says the greatest commandment are these three things of God and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. So the three most powerful influences that have the power to change the world forever is how we are influenced by our relationship with God and our neighbors and ourselves. And we, when we look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan got at him in those three ways. On the influences of, uh, he looked to the influence of his self, of what others might do and his relationship with God and how he might use those to influence him and knock him off for the calling and the purpose that God had for Jesus' ministry. These three ways that Satan tempted Jesus are the ways that we are also tempted in our lives that keep us from living the life that God has called us to. And we're going to look at that here today. And social media has, okay, real quick, Raise your hand if you have a social media account. Okay, just, okay. So this is, this is a real thing, right? We all understand what social media is, the impact it has in our lives. You know, when, um, when Facebook started the like button, uh, they went back and forth. It used to, it was going to be the awesome button. And they said that that word was too, uh, that's like the highest word. So like was, was what they came up with. But this, uh, this world that we're in, this need to get likes and followers and retweets and uh, mentions, and I don't have a hard time with social media, but it, is, um, it has created this environment where we are just living for the likes. We're just living for the likes. And so let's start with this first uh, interaction that Jesus had with Satan, and that's that, uh, this living for the likes of me. Okay, living for the likes of me. So it says, it says here in Matthew 4, 3, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Anyone give up carbs for Lent? That would be hard. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was fully human, and he was hungry. And Satan knew that uh, that was how he wanted to get to him, to fill the need that he had, his real human need. Because there's nothing like being hungry on a fast. And he was tempted to fill this God-given hunger. God gave us these bodies to need food, to hunger, and to thirst. 
But he was tempted to fulfill that God-given hunger in an ungodly way because Jesus knew if he would have done what Satan was tempting him, tempting him to do, that he would, have, um, he would have messed up what his purpose was being there. He's, and Jesus is basically saying, I've got the purpose for being here. I'm about, I'm about to begin my ministry, and there is something more important in this moment than my physical need. You know, so often I put my needs and my desires above the life that God has called me to. And when I give in to that, I wake up feeling empty and even sometimes more hungry than when I started. You know, sometimes we like to justify, uh, justify ourselves and we say, oh, I know I shouldn't, but then I do, and then I feel bad. But hey, you know what? Sin is fun. I mean, that's like the whole point. And if you don't think sin is fun, you're not doing it right. Don't be mad at me, but it's true. I mean, that's what, anything that pulls us away from God, um, Satan makes sin very tempting, very tempting. And what Jesus is, is teaching and Paul is pointing us to is that sometimes we take what we want and we need to just surrender it to God. Take those desires, those needs, those urges, and bow down and say, God, you know what I really need Help me see what that is rather than what I want. It is impossible to be filled with the desires of God when our own desires are overshadowing it. You know, we know this. Our, um, our, our greed, our, our gluttony, the, all of the things that we just do to uh, make ourselves feel better get in the way. And it feels good, do it. You know, look out for number one. I really like me some me. And then when i thinking about me and the likes of me, then I look around and my next thought is, what does everyone else think of me? Which is still me-focused, but then it's wondering, what is everyone else thinking? And what do I need to do to get other people to like me? I know we have people in this room who are um, people-pleasers, who are impression management. Um, you know, if we don't, if we don't uh, rein that in, if we don't uh, become aware of how we are living for the likes of others and ourselves, it has the potential of wrecking our calling for what God is us to. So the second way that Jesus was tempted was that to uh, live for the likes of others. Thinking about what people might think of what he's doing. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a three on the Enneagram. You're not supposed to say what you are, but um, according to the Enneagram, I get a number three. And the uh, Enneagram uh, measures your motives for doing things and why you do things, and you can look into it if you're interested. It's fascinating, fascinating. But one of them is, is um, one of my downfalls is impression management is trying to um, work hard and achieve and worry about what people think about me, which is why I really struggle with social media. I'm always questioning, well, if I put this out, will people think this? What will they do? It's like stupid. I just want to have fun with it and, point and post funny cat videos and dog videos, but I get all hung up. But research shows we are just, we are consumed and we are overwhelmed with refreshing the screen to see how many likes we're going to get. How many people are going to like our Facebook live feed today, right? How many people are going to like our, our posts on our social media page? Now, it's not bad. 
I mean, really what we want is people to worship wherever they are. I mean, that is the point behind doing what we're doing. But it can become consuming. Stephen Furtick said this. He said, the quickest way to disturb God's perfecting process in your life is to try to put up an image of perfection to others. To pretend like there's no room for growth, no room for improvement. You know, so Satan is with Jesus, and after Jesus shoots down the whole bread thing, the devil then, it says, then the devil takes him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he takes him up and he, he looks out at the holy city and the, and the temple, and there are no doubt people there, and he's saying, you're about to start this ministry. If you would just launch yourself off this cliff, you could just prove in one big swoop, like, you could fly, like, you're not going to hurt yourself. Like, they're just going to believe you. They'll be so impressed with you. Living for the likes of others. But Jesus says, don't put the Lord to the test. Jesus did not live his life to prove himself to others. How can you pursue holiness if your life is about constructing an image to show the world? So Jesus um, had something to say about this when he was asked and he was tested about what the greatest commandment was. And he said it was to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then right in the next part uh, in Matthew, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law. And, you know, he's talking to the experts of the law, and I wonder in this passage, if we were to put it into the context of today, who would he be talking about? I think he would be talking about his followers, about people in the church who claim to know a, little, a thing or two about God, right? This is, so this is who he was talking to then in Scripture, but I'm wondering if he's saying that to, to us today. And he's saying, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Look at the heart, and the outside will flow. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Ouch. They did it then. I mean, it's the religious people then. And, and we do it today, don't we? And let me just say, to, to, there might be some of us in this room who aren't quite social media or think, okay, good, that's that, and I don't really love that, so solidarity, sister, I'm with you. Like, we don't, I don't believe that. I think there are other ways that we try to uh, construct an image in order to get people to like us. It's not just social media. You know, for example, you're in a conversation with a group of people that you want to impress, like they're friends from your classroom or they're people you work with or people you go to the gym with. And a converse, in a conversation, someone's name comes up and you happen to know something interesting about that person that might make you feel important and add to the gossip conversation. And so you share it like, oh my gosh, can you believe so-and-so? Or I can't believe, you know, whatever. 
And we make ourselves feel or look important by participating in this conversation to try to impress others. Throw yourself off this, cliff and you can, off this cliff and you can impress them all with all that you know about this person. And in order to do that, you'll just forego the voice of God who's in you calling you to something different. See, when we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, when we per- pursue holiness in our relationship with other people, when we put others first, when we are actual love to other people, the Jesus kind of love, it'll make us do crazy things. It'll make us do great things. So we'll go to any length to show that love. We'll say, hey, in this gossip conversation, as you begin talking about my brother or my sister, I'm going to say, listen, we're not doing that. We're not going there. This is my brother and sister in Christ. I love them. I am not going to participate. And you are not afraid to walk away from a conversation. You are, more, you are more concerned with, with that, uh, living that holy life and lifting up and edifying the person than you are about impression management. Now, I don't need the likes of you if it means that I am less like Christ. See, here's, here's where I think we are totally uh, stuck, and I think this is Satan's plan all along. Because I believe that we live, live in this life, you know, for the getting the likes of other people. We are absolutely exhausted. We are exhausted. That whole, like, keeping up with the Jones <laughs> uh, comment, or, um, it, is, it just has us at, our, at the end of our rope. We have become so focused on pleasing others, of setting up a life to get the approval of others. We have nothing left for God. And it's no wonder we can't live it because we just we have no bandwidth left. I can't be generous with the money God's entrusted to me because I'm too busy um, holding up this, uh, this mortgage and these extra cars and whatever, my new phone or my name brand shoes. And what cost does it come when we pursue that? I can't live the life God has set aside for me because I'm too busy living the life that the world has set out for me. What would happen if we said, no more, no more. Lent is a time where you can ask that question. You can ask that question whenever you want. But during this Lent season, would you consider joining in the suffering and the self-examination and reflection of what in your life do you believe is more focused on what others believe or think of you than what God believes or thinks of you. If you were to look at your life and and, and look at it in two different ways, if if you're curious, maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't know, I don't, do I live for the likes of others? Do, am I real focused on myself? I don't, I don't know. I look at two places. I look at your calendar and your checkbook. You know, your calendar, how you spend your days is how you spend your life. Where are you spending your days? Where's your time going? Where is it going? Have you made Jesus just kind of like a a slice of the pie, a spoke on the wheel? Or is your relationship with Jesus the hub of everything you do? So you can look at your calendar. You can look at financially. Are you just, have you exhausted all your financial resources? You know, God has called us, no doubt, to live generous lives. Generous with the church, generous with other people. But if you are financially strapped, why? Are you maxed out? Why? How did you get there? I know this was the question that John and I had to wrestle with. 
feeling God calling us like, okay, I've got a purpose for you. And we felt like he had revealed it and we were ready for the next step. And we literally were so buried in debt and bad decisions that we couldn't see a way out. We, weren't, we had no bandwidth to do what we needed to do until we were willing to be pretty crazy and sacrifice a lot. Um, to have this life, uh, to, to follow Jesus the way we felt that we were being called, it came at a big cost. We lost friends. We were weird. Um, people didn't, uh, uh, we made people uncomfortable because we just, uh, just kind of took the, what Jesus said to heart and sold like everything and lived with people, and it was crazy. We'll go there another day. Um, but it was, it was a lot. And Paul is, is writing this letter from prison to Timothy, and he's, on the, he's like on the losing end. It's cost him everything. He doesn't know what's going to happen if he's going to make it out of this prison cell. And he doesn't care. He's not ashamed. He's like, I'm not ashamed. Of it. This is the gospel. This is why I'm suffering, and I know whom I have believed. Nothing will be in the way, not, not approval of others, not the perfect house, not the perfect manicured lawn, not the perfect family, not the perfect body. I'm going to follow Jesus at all costs. And the third, the third point here um, that we, looked at, we look at is uh, possibly, uh, we said the most important thing that a, about a person is what they believe about God. What they believe about God. Religion can be just as destructive to a holy life. Sometimes a sinfulness can. Say, I can't live a holy life if I'm living for getting the likes of God. God will like, 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 like. If my narrative about God is that if I'm better, if I'm better, then God might like me more. But then I just can't quite get good enough. Or, or I think if, if when I can quit this thing and I can stop doing this thing, then maybe God will like me more, but then it's too hard and I can't quit. So then maybe I tell myself that God doesn't like me, you know? And honestly, ask yourself this. Who wants to spend time with someone who doesn't like you? I mean, have you ever been forced to spend time with someone and you know that person doesn't like you? That's no fun. If you believe that that is if you're, if how you perform or, or, or what you've done is what will get your, you to be in the presence of God, well, that, that's kind of backwards. See, God loves you, and God likes you. If God had a refrigerator, he'd have your picture on it. If he had a wallet, he'd have your school picture in it. If he had a Facebook page, you'd be his profile picture. God loves you, and God likes you. There is nothing you can do that will make God like you anymore, and there's nothing you can do that will make God like you any less. See, Jesus had nothing to prove when he was being tempted in the desert. We read in verse 8, he says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Satan said, if you bow down and worship me, you can have all this, all the kingdoms of the world. But our God says, I have given you all of this already. 
so bow down and worship. You are holy, you are chosen, you are called, I love you. And then he says, so go and be love. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Saved and sanctified in one sentence. Neither of these is something that we accomplish. Legalism says, I'll give you my love if you bow down and worship. The gospel says, I have given you love, so bow down. And so the beginning of this, uh, it, the passage ends with the angels coming and attending to him after he sends Satan away. But Jesus walked confidently into the desert and, um, in order to, to have this encounter and defeat, uh, to defeat this uh, encounter with Satan. But where did this confidence come from? And so I want to look at right before, as I close, to what happened right before he walked into the desert. And if you, if you've, uh, if you know this part, um, Jesus walks down to the Jordan and he's baptized. And he goes down and John the baptizer is there and he says, "Hey, I need to get, I need to get baptized." And he's John's like, "I'm not." I'm not supposed to baptize you. You're supposed to baptize me. And he's like, no, no, no. I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness, right? And if you are familiar, he says he um, goes down and he takes under the water. And when he comes up out of the water, the skies part and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And if you hear anything today, I need you to listen to this truth. I don't know what I believe, I know in whom I believe. And even before Jesus is tempting in the desert, even before his ministry began, even before he had the opportunity to try to earn the approval of God, God lays it out. Before there's any chance to question how it all works, he says, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Why? Because all the good he does? Because he lived a perfect life? Because of the number of Facebook followers he has? Because he can recite all the books of the Bible? Because he gets to church on Sundays on time? <clears throat> um, because he doesn't cuss? Because he dresses modestly? Because he, he treats his wife right or his kids right? because he's got the right degree, because he's got the right friends, because he's got a big enough house, because he can say the right things, because he can dress the right ways. Any of those reasons? Nope. Because my son, whom I love, he pleases me. In our baptism, when we are buried with Christ and risen with Christ, in this new life, we say that Christ lives in us. So it stands to reason that in that moment when Christ is raised from the waters and the, heaven, the heavens part and the voice says, this is my son whom I love and I am well pleased. You know what he's saying? He's saying, this is my daughter, Kayla, whom I love and I am well pleased. This is my daughter, Jessica, whom I love and I am well pleased. This is my daughter, Maddie. This is my daughter, Mia, whom I love, and I am well pleased. And I can't love you any more, and I can't love you any less than I do in this very moment. And in that moment, he goes down, and he comes up, and he says, This is my son, whom I love, and I am well pleased. This is my son, Roger. This is my son, Jim. This is my son, Mike, 
whom I love and I am pleased because of my own purposes and my own plan. And I have called you since before the beginning of time and I have a purpose for your life and I want a good life for you. And I don't have to refresh a screen or get a bunch of likes from people in this world to know that. Because I am one whom Christ dwells and delights and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. I don't live to get more likes. I live to be more like. And that S makes a difference. I'm going to have our music team come, come forward. This reflection paper that's on your sheet here, there should be pens around you. Jesus' points to the greatest commandment, to love God and our neighbor and ourselves. And when he's, he's in, the, he's in the, the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan and he's attacking these influences and trying to get him to bend, and he doesn't, but we can, in this moment, we can be uh, with Jesus. We know that Jesus was tempted and overcame it, and we know that we too are overcomers. But I ask you today, of those areas in your life, of living for the likes of myself, of living for the likes of others, or for God, is there an area where you feel like during this season of Lent, you need God to make your eye, open your eyes, make yourself aware of, of where it is that you could surrender? Where do you need God's saving grace and work in your life? And so for just a few minutes as the music team plays in this song, we're just going to give you some time and space to reflect on that. You can write it on that, uh, that paper, and you can just uh, sit in the moment and pray.